and for all who would receive him. So, verse 49, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. That doesn't appear on first glance to be a messianic reference. That is, a looking forward in redemptive history to what is yet to come. But it is, and the Apostle Paul demonstrates it to be so. In Romans chapter 15, Paul refers to that very verse. When he writes to the Romans, he says, I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles, that is the nations, might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, and he quotes from Psalm 18, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. Jesus is Savior for all people for all nations, for all the ethnos, that is the Greek word, of the world, including you and me. But what does it mean that he's a savior? What does that mean to us? Because if if you're a believer in Christ, then you have wrestled with this to some extent because you've You've recognized your sin and you've felt the weight of your guilt and you've wrestled with those matters and you've recognized your need for God to be your Savior. But if you're not a Christian, if you're not a a believer, then you may think that you have no need for a, quote, Savior. But you do in in many practical ways. So there's a string of metaphors here that, that will show you that Paul... Uh, David, the, the poet, writes of God as my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. The metaphors just begin to roll off of the tip of his pen, don't they? As he describes God as his Savior. And together, all of these metaphors communicate God's action to save. And the primary one, which gets repeated throughout the psalm four different times, is you are my rock. God, you are my, my rock. The Lord is my rock. He is my rock. Verse 2, twice. In verse 46, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock. In verse 31, which we've not looked at yet, who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Now when a, a, a phrase, a metaphor like that is repeated a couple of times in Scripture, it's so that you'll notice it. When it's repeated four times, it's kind of to get your attention. It, it wants you to see, the writer does, that this is really important right here. God is your rock, which communicates to us a number of things, a number of ways in which we need and long for a Savior. For one, a rock would serve to protect you from certain conditions. In the heat of the Judean desert, where David spent much of his time, there were very few places to hide from the searing sun of the summertime. And in the springtime, the rain might bring an outburst of growth of of grass and other green plant life in various places. But some weeks later, the the searing heat of the summer sun would burn it all up, except for in the, the east side of a large rock where it was protected from the afternoon Sun. You know, we, we see the same thing in Texas in summertime. If you just go take a road trip outside of Dallas, pretty soon you're driving past farmland where the cattle is in the pasture 
And where are they in the middle of the heat of the day? They're all under the shade of a tree. They know better too because they recognize the need for protection from certain conditions. Well, it has a human dimension in Scripture. In Isaiah 32, Isaiah foresees the coming of God's king and he describes it this way. He says, A king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. So God's king was to serve as a rock, a protector, a shade for the weaker, for his people, where they could find protection. That's what a rock does. It saves you in that way. There's a second way that a rock serves as a savior, and that is it is a refuge from assault. It's a refuge from assault. This is a very significant idea in Psalm 18. I haven't given you in the bulletin the words of, uh, of, of, of superscription before the psalm begins, but David explains, <clears throat> or, or some editor does, to explain what David was doing here. They describe the psalm before it begins as a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. David spent a lot of time in his early days running from Saul. And he spent that time out in the rocks, out in the rocks of the Judean desert, down near the Dead Sea. There's a place called En Gedi. You read about it in Scripture. And you see that there, David, with his few loyal men, before he was king, when Saul was still king, fled from Saul and hid in the clefts of the rocks. There in that place, David sought refuge from his his accuser from his pursuer. And for you and me, it, it works in a very similar way. You know, we, we have to seek out a Savior when we're assaulted by temptation. And God is the only place where you will find refuge from that sort of assault. A third way that a rock serves as a Savior is that it serves as a foundation on which to stand. It's a protection, it's a refuge, it's a foundation. As opposed to Psalm 40, Verse 2, which says this, He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. Here in verse 19, we see David writes, God brought me out into a broad place. In verse 36, which parallels that section, verse 36, You gave me a wide place for my steps under me. David is Reflecting on the fact that God, as a rock, serves as his foundation upon which he can stand. And for us, in our day, in our life, God ultimately is the only place where anyone can stand for their worldview and consistently live in this world as a human being and stand on the foundation that God alone can provide for understanding what this world means. So, he's a savior in those ways. We'll sing... In a few moments, a song, a famous hymn, Rock of Ages, that was written by uh, Augustus Toplady, who was an English pastor in the 1700s, who wrote this psalm on a stormy day, at least the, the legend has it, and it fits very well, wrote this psalm on a stormy day as he was traveling through the countryside of England, 
and seeking refuge from the storm alongside of a, a large limestone outcropping. And there he found a crevice in the rocks where he could climb in and wait out the storm. And that was the impetus for the writing of that song, Rock of Ages. There is no other source of protection. There is no other source of refuge or foundation that this world can possibly provide for us. And so, verse 31, who is a rock except our God? There is nothing in this world that will or can serve you in that way. So if you're an unbeliever, if you're not a Christian, then you are still constantly looking for something to provide these things for you. You're looking for financial protection. You're looking for for some way for the finances that you gain from your employment to protect you from whatever it is that will cause you to seem unsure. You're looking for social refuge, aren't you? I mean, we all need refuge from social situations. And so we, we devise ways and we come up with personality sort of ways to to work our way into a social situation that will be a refuge for us. We might use humor to do it, or we might use sarcasm to do it. We, we want a refuge in which to hide. And you look for a foundation oftentimes in your education. If you can gain enough education, then it will be a foundation on which you can stand and at least say, well, I know these things to be true. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're looking for these things, but only the Creator is able to offer Himself ultimately as a rock, And what does this reality mean for us? What does it mean for for you? It means that if God is your rock, then there should be no fear for you in the Christian life. Now, of course, you should, as we're told in Scripture, as any wise man and wise woman will do, we should fear the Lord in in the sense of respecting and honoring and revering God as God. And that means with our repentance, But God's offering of himself as a savior, as our rock, is an expression of his love for us. And the apostle John wrote of that this way. He said, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because God first loved us. There is no fear in speaking the gospel of grace into the world in which you live, if God is your rock. And there is no fear of trusting God with your future years, even if you're not sure and have great doubts about what they hold for you. There is no fear in trusting God for those years to come if God is your rock. And there is no fear of believing that God will be with your children as they go and Grow up and leave your house and go out into the world on their own to college or to work or to whatever it is that they're after. There's no fear that God will take care of his own even when they're not in your care directly. We love God because he's a savior. We also love him because he's a responder. The second and fifth sections parallel each other in that way. Verse 6 David writes, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. And from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. 
Now, ever since 9-11, that is September 11 of 2001, which you all have memories of, even if you were too young at that time to take it in or not even born yet, you have memories of it because you've seen the videos, you've, you've heard the stories, you've, you've seen the pictures of those planes flying into those towers in New York City. And you've heard the stories of the commotion and how it shut down the entire country. I was just talking to a high school friend of mine this week who lives on the West Coast. He was remembering his birthday is on September 11. And he remembers going to work that morning on the West Coast. It was his birthday. And on the West Coast, by that time, everything was happening and all the news channels were on and everybody was sent home. It was his birthday. You have memories of of the first responders who, ever since that day have great respect in our country and in our society, don't they? First responders. There might not be a single profession in our society that garners more immediate respect universally. No matter your background, your socioeconomic status, your education, no matter what, there is not, I think, another profession that garners more immediate respect than the first responders because you can remember the the scenes of those police and firefighters and paramedics and EMTs and others who were rushing into the scene of danger and not away from it. They were rushing in because there were people trapped. There were people in distress, people in the last moments of their lives who needed someone to respond to their circumstance. And as as human beings, we, we admire that bravery. We really do because we, recognizing, we recognize the necessity of it in this fallen world, don't we? Someone needs to respond. And that's the reason, I think, because that the unnatural courage that, that this shows is ironically to us so natural because God has done this. This is the narrative of the world and the life in which we live. In the second section here, David is very poetically creative as he describes God's response. After verse 6, it's not in the bulletin for the sake of space, but I'll read it to you. You might have a a Bible before you can see this. Verse 7, this is David describing God's response. Listen to this. My cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because God was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. God is angry. Why is God angry? Because... One of his beloved children is in distress. And David goes on, verse 11. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them, Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, He took me, He drew me out of many waters, He rescued me. God is a responder. God is a 
responder to the distress signals of his beloved children. Isn't that amazing? It's, it's a very poetic and powerful picture of God's response. It's almost overblown, isn't it? Why would God do this? Now, you may think, of course God would do this for David. David was important. He was the king, after all, and so surely God plays favorites like we do, we think, and and God would do this for David. But we know that God does it more broadly because he did it for Jonah. Jonah the prophet. Jonah the minor prophet. Jonah the prophet who fled from God when God told told him what to do, right? So you know the story. God called Jonah and told him, go and Preach repentance to your enemies in Nineveh. And Jonah knew better than God, of course, and said, that's crazy. I'm not going to do that. And so Jonah took off the other direction and sailed off into the sea to run from God. And God responded and chased after Jonah because to flee from God's command is always a bad idea. And God came after Jonah. Jonah jumped into the ocean, into the storm, and God sent the fish to capture Jonah and swallow him and From the belly of that fish, Jonah prayed. And Jonah quotes David from Psalm 18 in his prayer. Now, take a look there at verse 6. And follow along as I read to you Jonah's words from his prayer from the belly of the fish. This is what Jonah prayed. In my distress, I called to the Lord. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. And he listened to my cry. And he answered me from his holy temple. Jonah knew that God was a responder. And even though Jonah was fleeing from God, God knew, God, Jonah recognized God was responding. Not just to Jonah in his distress, but to the Ninevites in their distress. God had told Jonah, go and preach the gospel to the Ninevites. And Jonah said, no, I'm running the other way. God, in response to the distress of the Ninevites, chased after his own man and turned him around and took him back to preach to the Ninevites who repented. God responds to his people. Now you may think, well, of course God did this for Jonah. He was a prophet. Why would God do this for me? Well, that puts you in good company. A man named Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in that famous John chapter 3 story and questioned Jesus. He had good questions. He wondered, who is Jesus? Jesus, you seem to be an important person. Tell me more about yourself and, and God's response to the world. And Jesus explained to him in those, in those immortal words, God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that he sent his only son, so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. God is a responder to distress signals. And why would God do this for David? Why would God do this for Jonah? Why would God do this for Nicodemus? Why would God do this for you? The answer is in verse 19. David tells us it's a simple answer. He rescued me because... He delighted in me. Let me read that again because you didn't hear it. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Let that sink in for a minute. He rescued me because he delighted in me. 
Does God delight in you? Do you think that He does? Do you believe that God delights in you? That may be one of the most challenging spiritual issues for you to face. Do you believe that God delights in you? Really? Do you? That's a a troubling thing for us. He does. Scripture tells us that He does. Sometimes you're convinced of it. On your good days, you're convinced that it's true. Sometimes you're not convinced of it. Because you, whether you're a Christian or not, believer or not believer, you wrestle with two problems. One problem is the problem of guilt, which is the result of what you have done. The other problem is the problem of shame, which is the result of who you are. Now, last week I I made the point that our culture tries to persuade us that guilt doesn't exist. Our culture wants to declare its own standards, which are always shifting with the wind, and to say to you, guilt doesn't really exist. You're not guilty of anything. Just accept yourself for who you are. But really, that's like saying that the sun has gone the way of Pluto, right? When we decided that, you know, a year or two ago that Pluto was no longer a planet, I think. I think that Pluto has made a comeback, hasn't it? But it's like saying, you know, the sun has gone the way, that the sun doesn't even exist. To say that there's no such thing as guilt is to say the sun doesn't exist because the sun casts a shadow on the ground inevitably, doesn't it? And the shadow is shame. The shadow of guilt is, is shame. Guilt is what you feel before the law because you failed to meet its standards. Shame is what you feel before the eyes of other people because you failed to meet their standards. And we all feel it. We all feel shame. Every one of you, no matter what your age, young or old, every one of you feels shame. You will feel shame later today. You may feel shame right now. You may have felt shame coming into the theater this morning. You may have felt shame from the moment that you woke up, even in your dreams. Shame haunts you because you don't live up to other people's standards. We all feel it. Because of shame and guilt, we wonder, could God really delight in me? Could He really? He does. He does. The the fifth section in verse 32, David writes this, God is the God who made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. Those are the antidotes to shame. You're blameless in God's sight. He set you secure on the heights. And this he does as a father who is willing to rush wildly, breaking the furniture, as it were, of his own house, of his own creation, in order to get to his own child who is in distress. And when he gets there, he shows that not only is he a savior and a responder, he's also a justifier. We love God because He's a justifier. Sections 3 and 4, right in the middle of the psalm, which means they're the pinnacle, they're the the ultimate point of the psalm. Look at verse 20. The Lord dealt with me, David says, according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. 
Now, let me ask you this. How can David say those words? Because they're not true. I mean, let's be honest together. If you know the story of David, you know those, those things are not true of him. They're just not. David, David's story was dramatic. I mean, there was so much unrighteousness in it. Remember, the psalm is, is coming late in David's life. It was at least commissioned late in 2 Samuel towards the end of his life when there was a whole lot of water under the bridge for David, a lot of dirty water. I mean, David committed adultery. He committed murder. And he had written another psalm, 51, already at this point in which he had prayed, Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions against you, Have I sinned? In fact, he says, from the moment I was conceived in my mother's womb, I had this disease called sin and all the guilt and shame that comes with it. David had already written that in a psalm at this point. And if you go back to 2 Samuel 22, where you find this psalm commissioned, just a short time later, David, the older, mature king, decided in unbelief, to take a census of his people and his fighting men to see just how strong he was. He sinned against God. And and all the people suffered the consequences because of David's unbelief in God, even after he wrote this psalm. That's David's unbelief. David is not here claiming a righteousness that he himself accomplished. He's not. Now, there are similar claims to this one in other psalms, especially in David's psalm, his various psalms. He says these sorts of things with some regularity. So what is he doing? What is he doing here with these words? There's something messianic about these words, and there's also something practical about these words. Okay, so take a look at these words. Whenever you read a psalm, one of the things you have to, have to ask yourself is, how are these words the words of Jesus? How do these words fit on the lips of Jesus himself? And so, imagine Jesus saying these words, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. Could Jesus say those words? Oh, he could. He could could very well say those words. And on our behalf, God justifies us by the life of that man who could say these things. By His righteousness, we are justified. So there's a messianic way in which you can see these words fitting in. But there's also a practical way. And that is that sanctification, that is God's growing us in grace and causing us to become more and more like Him, is actually a real and tangible thing. That's not just a theory. It's just not some kind of theological ideal that's out there for some people, maybe. No, it's there for you, too. It really is a real and tangible thing that God does sanctify us and cause us to grow in real, tangible holiness. And so David is testifying here that God is working to make him righteous. Verse 22, For all of his rules were before me, And his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. 
Now, that statement is reflected in the parallel section, the next section in verse 28. It is you, Lord, who light my lamp. The Lord my God who lightens my darkness. What is David saying with that? Except that, that it's God who has provided for David a light, which is, in the Psalms, God's word, God's rules, God's statutes, His laws. God has provided for David a light of His word to show him how to walk before God Himself. David admits through his life and by the narrative of his own story, I stumble and I fall, but you correct me and you bring me back and you enable me more and more and more and more to actually, tangibly grow in righteousness. Because of this practical reality of of sanctification, David knows that he has a new relationship with God. Verse 25 With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. I think what David is saying here is that God deals with people according to who they are. He deals with them according to how they choose to deal with Him. With the ways in which you pose yourself to God, He deals with you accordingly. If they are in Christ, if you are in Christ, merciful, blameless, purified, then He deals with you, verse 20, according to the righteousness and cleanness and purity of Christ Himself. But if you are crooked, He deals with you, making Himself seem tortuous. Now, that's a confusing word. It's not my preference for the English translation, but it's the translation that's in the ESV. Other translations use shrewd or twisted. It's a complicated word to translate. Tortuous sounds to me like torture. Does God torture people? That's not what tortuous means. Tortuous means convoluted or complicated or confusing or twisting or shrewd. If a person deals with God thinking that they can be shrewd or convoluted with God and that they can outwit God, then God deals with them the same way because God will not be outwitted. The haughty eyes you bring down, David says, God will not justify the proud, but he does justify the humble. Paul puts it this way, to one who believes in God, who justifies the ungodly, that faith is counted as righteousness. And if you are such a one who believes this gospel, then you are, in the eyes of God, as righteous as Christ. How can God delight in you? You are as righteous as Christ. And if you know that, then you will respond with love. Tommy Allen was a church planter, a pastor in Seattle, Washington, 20-some years ago. In his young church, as it began to grow, and people gathered around the gospel and his proclamation of God's good news and love for sinners, a man began to come and be a part of that congregation, that church, to listen intently. A man who, as Tommy got to know him, 
learned that this man struggled very deeply with sexual immorality. This man had an addiction that turned into some very nasty and manipulative sorts of alleys in this man's life. And this man would listen in desperation, hearing the gospel and receiving it and believing. And as Tommy talked to him and discipled him and spoke the gospel to him, this man repented and believed and recognized God's love for him, his care for him despite his circumstances, despite his own sins. And the man really, truly began to change and to believe and to follow and to trust the Lord. But then one night, the old voices began to fill his head. The old temptations began to call on his heart. And he picked up the phone and he called Tommy and he said, Tommy, I just want you to know the temptation's too strong and tonight I'm going out. What do you have to say to me, Tommy? What does a pastor say to a man like that? Tommy said to him, I think the only wise words he could say. He said, okay, friend, you're going to do what you're going to do, but when you do it, I want you to remember this. You are as righteous as Christ. The man hung up the phone. Tommy didn't hear from him for a couple of days, and the man finally did come by and see him, and he said to Tommy, he said, I hung up the phone, and I went to bed. I didn't go. I said no to the temptation because your words rung in my brain and in my soul all night long. You are as righteous as Christ? Really? If you are as righteous as Christ, then you'll respond with love. Your unbelieving neighbors, the people who live around you, who work around you every day, have a love-hate relationship with God. Do you know that? They, they all do. They want to believe God. They want to love God. In, in their heart of hearts, they, they want to because they can't avoid it. They're made in His image. It's in their DNA. They're searching for it down deep. But they can't see why they should love God. They can't see how they could love God. Why does God love you? Because He chose to. Paul wrote it in 2 Timothy chapter 1. These words he wrote, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of good things we had done, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus, listen to this, before the beginning of time. Before the foundations of the earth, God had chosen to love you. And why should you love Him back? Because He is for you a Savior. And He is to you a responder. And He is on your behalf a justifier. You are by faith as righteous as Christ. And so I love you, O Lord my strength, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, help us to believe. Help us to recognize that this is the truth of the gospel to which you call us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us, even as we come to the communion table, to to take from the bread and the wine that you would cause us to trust you, to believe that you have loved us from before the foundations of the earth. 
and that you, in return, call us to love you where we find life. Help us to do that in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.